1.7 million Australians. 1.7 million Australians. That's one in twelve about what's the master test for knowledge. What does that say about our culture? Who knows? However, one of the fascinating things about MasterChef this year was that they tried to draw in, to try to keep the ratings up, they tried to draw in all sorts of really big name chefs from around the world. But maybe the weirdest moment in the whole season of MasterChef this year was where they pulled in not a chef, but they pulled in the Dalai Lama to be a tasting judge. It was a truly strange episode, but I wonder whether it actually says something profound about our culture. I'll tell you why. Because the MasterChef producers are very, very intelligent, clever people. They put stuff on their show that they think will really resonate in the Australian culture to get their ratings up. Why do they have an episode with the Dalai Lama? What are they saying about Australian culture? So I'm just going to show you one minute of a clip from that particular episode that I found particularly thought-provoking. What do you make of this clip? Something that's something cool about that with respect to our culture. What is it? Well, I want to suggest to you that out of that we can get two, what I call Aussie spirituality axioms. So we're straight to you from the master chef picture. And I think these are the two axioms we learned. First of all, oh, see, I knew this wouldn't work. Left, that's left. See, look, left. Try right. No. <laughs> Thank you. We'll try again. Two. Okay, first of all, first of all is I think a bit of spiritual dabbling is cool, just don't overdo it. It's very interesting on this. Why do they call the Dalai Lama in? Do you think it would have worked as an episode if they called him instead the Archbishop of Canterbury? in purple bishop's shirt with clerical collar. It just wouldn't have resonated the same way, would it? 
There's something about the Dalai Lama, something about Tibetan Buddhism that's just a bit out there, a bit different, a bit cool. And he's doing this, they don't, they're not trying to make you become a Tibetan Buddhist. They're not interested in you becoming a Tibetan Buddhist or a devoted Christian or a full-on sort of uh, Jew. They just, they just say, this is a bit cool. It's cool to spin a prayer wheel, to, to murmur something to the great divine, whatever. It's just cool to dabble with it. It's spiritual accessorizing. Add a bit of spirituality onto the edge of your life. That's cool, that's it. But just don't go overboard. I think that's the first axiom of Australian spirituality here. Secondly, I think the second spiritual axiom action is that all spiritualities are equally true. Or maybe more precisely, equal fiction. See, I think the fact that everyone around the table got to say their bit, everyone got to offer their blessing, say their prayers to their God or God, what does that say? Well, for the, for the spiritually minded person, it probably represents the belief that ultimately all these spiritualities are approximations of getting you towards the one true truth somehow. And probably if your spirituality, the more inclusive it is, then probably the closer it is to that reality. Because at the heart of it, it doesn't really matter what route you take. Mind you, for the spiritually sceptical, and I reckon there's a lot of those now in Australia, they look at what's happening around the table and they just think, they're all make-believe. They are all different forms of wishful thinking. It is all just a way of sort of create a creative fiction to somehow deal with your existential unease about the half realities of life. So I think those are the two spiritual axioms you get out of MasterChef. What we're going to do over these next, uh, for this week, the next two weeks, is try and look at what the Christian understanding is of what it means to be spiritual. And we're going to do it by looking at Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8. And what I hope to show you today is that Romans chapter 7 has something to say about these two of the spirituality axioms. So, that's what we're going to do. So, if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to open up to Romans chapter 7, call it up on your phone, or go to bible.gateway.com so you can get access to the Bible wherever you are, provided you've got reception. <laughs> call up Romans 7, that will be really helpful for you. You've got a bit of an outline, I've got a couple of things there that I'll talk about as well. So, since we're jumping into Romans chapter 7, sort of halfway through Paul's letter, it helps to get our heads around what are the issues that Paul is trying to address. Now, a key problem for the Christians in Rome was this. As followers of Jesus Christ, should we be keeping the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, or not? There's all sorts of laws in the first five books of the Bible, known as the sort of the law, the Torah. From chapter 14 of Paul's letter to the Romans, we know that there was a, this was a disputed question amongst the Christians in the Church of Rome. If you look at chapter 14 sometimes, look at verse 3 and verse 10, you can see in particular that some from a Gentile background, that is a non-Jewish background, they uh, were saying, no, look, we don't need to follow the Old Testament law, while people from the Jewish background, who are now followers of Jesus, but from the Jewish background, they're saying, well, no, God gave this law to his people, we think he should keep his law, he should follow his law. So there's a division amongst the believers of Rome, but more than that, they now start to get a bit nasty about it to each other. So the Gentile believers were treating the Jewish believers with contempt, you follow the law, how crazy is that? 
and the Jewish believers were condemning or judging the Gentile believers. You don't see God for how how I look at that. So there was a significant pastoral problem in the church life, but underlying it was a really significant theological problem. As followers of Jesus, what do we do with respect to this old covenant law? Should we live by it or not? Now Paul tells off dealing with this big question until this particular point in the letter, chapter 7. And so that's what we're jumping into today. And if we want to get to the heart of what Paul has to say, I think you can look particularly at verses 4 to 6. I think what we get in verses 4 to 6 of chapter 7 is Paul's summary of what he has to say. Now the chapter divisions are a bit unhelpful here because I think what he has to say really starts in chapter 7 and it goes through at least to halfway through chapter 8 on this question. And what he does is he gives us a bit of a summary at the beginning and then he unpacks it over the rest of chapter 7 and a half of chapter 8. Now, if you've been following along in the book of Romans, you'll know that's pretty standard for Paul. He often does this. Launch into the summary statement and then unpack it over the coming uh, paragraph. And I think we get the same thing happening here. This is not unusual for Paul. So that's how it sort of fits in. And if you can figure out my diagram, I think verse 4 sort of summarises what's happening in verses 1 to 3. Verse 5 is what he talks about then in the rest of chapter 7. And verse 6 is what he talks about in the first half of chapter 8. That's sort of how it fits into the argument. That's how it fits into the argument, but in terms of the logic of what he says in this summary, you can see there on your diagram, verse 5 is really, I think, about the past. Verse 4 is about the transformation that happens through Jesus Christ. And verse 6 is about the result of that, the present life in the present as a follower of Jesus. So what we're going to do is try to follow through that logical sequence. We'll start with verse 5. It's in most of that time there, because that's what I'm saying most of chapter 7 is about. And then we'll look briefly at 4 and 6 and see where that's going to take us the next couple of weeks. So let's start there with verse 5. You can see what Paul writes. He says, For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit to death. Now, if you've got your Bible open, so you might like to compare it with the translation I've given you there, your Bible might express it a little differently, particularly if you're reading an NIV translation. Uh, the NIV, up until very recently, used the phrase sinful nature instead of the word flesh. Literally, the word all uses is this word flesh. That's a bit confusing, some of the translators felt, so they translated it as sinful nature. I don't think that was a great move, um, I think it's actually a bit confusing. The reason is because if you're a follower of Jesus, say, and I say to you, do you have a sinful nature? You tend to go, well, I still sin, I wish I didn't, but I still do, and so there's sort of, I, I guess there's some sort of sinful nature in so we sort of think, yes, I have a sinful nature, except the way this chapter and the way Paul works is, it's a, it's a dichotomy, it's a split in the two. You're either in the flesh, or you're in the spirit. You're in one or the other. You're not sort of crossing over both boundaries. And so I think the simple nature is not being terribly helpful. Um, and interestingly, in the latest edition of the NIV, which just came out last year, they've now got rid of the phrase simple nature and they've gone back to the word flesh. So that's just as it is. What would you like me to do? I'd like you to lose it, but I don't know what happened. <laughs> 
Who would like me to not use the microphone at all? Who would like me to persist? Who's asleep? <laughs> okay, I will lose the microphone. Alright. So, let's have a look then at a bit, a bit of detail then at this verse. What is he saying? What's Paul saying? He says, when we were in the flesh. What's he talking about? When was he in the flesh? Paul's talking, I think, about life before becoming a follower of Jesus. Life before becoming a follower of Jesus. Or put it another way, he's talking about life outside of the new covenant. Outside of the new covenant which comes through faith in Jesus. I think particularly he's speaking about those who knew God's law. They knew the Old Testament law. You can see that from verse 1. He says that, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking particularly, I think, to Jews like himself, who's now become followers of Jesus, the Christ. And what he's doing is he's identifying how does the law, or how did the law, function in our life as old covenant members of God's people before we came to Jesus. That's what he's trying to identify. And what he says is really unexpected. Why do we have laws in Australia? Well, we have laws to stop you doing wicked things, terrible things. Law is meant to restrain evil. Yeah? I've, I've never done law, I don't really know, but I'm just guessing that's the point of it. What Paul says here about the law, God's law, is really strange. He says actually what God's law did, instead of restraining evil, it actually multiplied the sin. How did it do that? Well, you can see it there. Uh, he says a bit further down, let me read from verse 7, where he expands out on this summary in verse 5. He says, What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to cover if the law had not said, You shall not cover. So at this point, he's just saying the law shines the spotlight and identifies what sin is. Law says coveting is a sin. Okay, that's good. The law's doing something good there. But then read from verse 8. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. So instead of the law restraining sin, what happened was the sin, his internal sinful passions, heard the law, do not covet, and thought, Man, but I want to cover so much. And suddenly started covering all. The law actually multiplies sin. Operates with his sinful internal passions that he has. I think therefore what you're getting in this chapter, chapter 7, this unexpected, I guess, function of God's law in his old covenant people is a picture of dead Spirituality. Dead spirituality. That is, here is a spiritual life possessing the laws of God but without the empowering spirit of God. It's a dead spirituality, a spirituality that produces fruit not for God but for death. It's a seemingly outrageous thing to say, isn't it, about Judaism. It's a dead spirituality labouring under the old covenant. 
And if he's going to say that about Judaism, that certainly means that for any other religious system you care to, care to think about, they've got no hope. Because under the Old Covenant, they at least had, they knew who the one true living God was, and they had his laws, but it still only produced death in them. It's a picture of dead spirituality. And that is such an outrageous thing to say. That's why Paul has to go into such lengths for the rest of chapter to explain it. And the way he does that from verse 7 onwards is by two rhetorical objections, two rhetorical questions. The first one's there in verse 7, he says, so are you saying that the law itself with sin is the problem with the law? And as I just read out to you from verse 7, he says, no, no, absolutely not. The problem isn't the law, the problem is sin. The problem is this, this deep-seated, fundamental, uncompromising attitude that we have that says, God, thank you very much for your law, but no. And when you think about it, that is the hardest thing, isn't it? Just saying no to God's command. Isn't that what Abraham and Eve did in the garden? God only gave them you know, the one prohibition, don't eat of this tree. And they said, thank you for that. No. We'll have that one. Isn't that what happened when the nation of Israel was there at Mount Sinai receiving the very laws of God and God says, do not make for yourself an idol or an image. And he goes, no. Give us your earrings, let's make a path. Isn't that Paul's own experience? Isn't that the experience of the nation of Israel right through the Old Testament saying no to God's command? And, it, and Paul says it was his own experience as a zealous Jew. Yes, I know the laws of God. Yes, I look down on everyone else in the world because they don't have any laws. But no, I don't actually follow them. I don't, I don't follow them. The problem isn't the law, the problem is sin. Okay, so Paul then follows it up with a second rhetorical objection when you get to verse 13. You can see there, he says, So did the law, this good thing, cause my death, bring my death? Again, his answer is absolutely not. You can't blame the law. In fact, what he says is, the law is a really good thing because God's law is it's on the spotlight onto sin. That's what sin is. That's what sin is. That's what sin is. But then also, it showed how sinful sin is. It showed how wicked sin is. How did it do that? Well, because the law says, when you reject God and his ways like this, the consequence is death. The law brings the judgment, death. And he says, in that way, the law actually shows how sinful sin is because it brings death to those who reject God. So the law is good, it is holy, it is the commandment is righteous and holy, as he says here in this passage. The problem is with sin. And Paul goes on then, he delves deeper into it in verse 14 and following to identify the root problem here. The problem is sin, and the problem of that is, he says, the problem is that I was in the flesh. I was in the flesh. I was sold under sin. That's why I couldn't follow the law even when I wanted to. So if you jump down to say verse 18, you can see what he says. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. There's the key. There's no ability to do this law. Again, he's talking about in general, about Jewish life outside of Christ. Life as a Jew outside of the New Covenant. And that statement, the inability to do what God is asking to do, is true of 
Israel's history right throughout the Old Testament. It's a story of the lack of power, the inability to do what God wanted. Now we know actually from the Old Testament itself what the answer is. Ignore the New Testament for a moment. Just think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you get this story of just the failure of God's people to be out of holy wars. What's the solution to that in the Old Testament itself? What's the ultimate solution in the Old Testament? The ultimate solution in the Old Testament itself is the promise of a new covenant. The promise of that one day God would write his law onto their heart so that then they would follow him and he would put his spirit in them. That's the promise in the Old Testament. That's the solution. You need the Spirit. And where does Paul go in chapter 7? He says the solution is the Spirit that comes through the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. That's where he goes in verse 6, that's where he goes in verse 8. These chapters are all totally informed about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which is there in the Old Testament itself, and now he's playing out the implications of that here in the New Testament day. So, we know from the Old Testament itself that the solution ultimately is life through the Christ, that's Jesus, and the Spirit of God indwelling within them. So, what I'm saying to you is I think this Romans chapter 7 is a picture of this life without the Spirit, this inability to live for God. And it's a terrible position to be in. Verse 24, Paul says, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? And he goes straight on, verse 25, to tell you the solution. The rescue comes from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how I think chapter 7 works. But I need to say a little word here. A little word, because chapter 7 has often been used by Christians to say Paul's describing his current experience as a follower of Jesus. Romans 7 is a picture of the Christian life. This struggle with sin. It's, I understand why people read it that way uh, for the first, I mean, a couple of reasons. One, Paul uses the first person. So if you look at verse 18 and 19 again, he says, For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I don't want to do. He's using the first person, he's using the present tense. So they'll say, sure, sure, he's talking about his present life. Huh? The second reason we think that is because it resonates so much with, frankly, my discipleship under the Lord Jesus. I struggle with sin, so surely he's talking about what I feel. I want to say a couple of things about that. First of all, I want to say, I don't actually think that fits with the flow of what Paul's saying. As I try to move you through chapter 7 and into chapter 8, I'm trying to say, I think actually he's moving from Old Covenant to New Covenant. So you can't just jump in, grab one paragraph that sounds like my life and say, he must be talking about me. You've got to actually follow the flow. So I don't think actually it follows the flow to say this is about present Christian experience. The second problem I have with reading a Christian experience is if he is talking about Christian experience, he says too much and he starts to contradict what he says in chapter 6 and chapter 8. And then you've got to say, well, Paul is not clear at this point. Like he's all muddled, he's confused in his own mind within the space of just, I imagine, a few minutes of dictation. Okay, so let's try and have a look a bit, a bit about that. What I'm going to suggest to you is that actually when Paul is saying I have no ability to do the good 
He's not describing his present Christian experience. He's experiencing he's describing his life under the old covenant. When he talks about present Christian experience, he says things like this: "By the by, the Spirit put to death the misdeeds of the body." It's a much more positive sense of that you actually are now able to do what God requires by the power of the Spirit of God. Not you have no ability. So when he says things like, I am sold under sin, he's not talking about that present Christian experience. When he talks about present Christian experience, he says things like, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Or the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from both in chapter 8. Or our old self was crucified with him. That's, when he's talking about Christian life, these are the things that he says. So for all these sorts of reasons, I think I don't think it actually just fits well with the text to say Paul in chapter seven, particularly from verse fourteen, is talking about Christian life. I just don't think, unfortunately, it fits. Now I do want to say at that point, though, we do struggle with sin. It's just that Paul's not talking about it here. There are other places in the New Testament that talk about our struggle with sin. There's places that talk about the Christian life as being engaged in a spiritual battle. With, the, with spiritual forces, say Ephesians 6. There's places where it talks about how we face temptation, but under the power of God we can always overcome it. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. There's places that talk about how you are never going to be free of sin, even as a follower of Jesus. And yet whenever you do sin, there will be, there, there is sufficient atonement for you in Jesus' death for you. Places like 1 John chapter 1. And yet even there, in 1 John chapter 1, there's an expectation that Christians won't be just living a life in in sin. Because you're not in the flesh. You're not sold under sin. You are now in the spirit. And that gives you the power as a new covenant follower of the Christ Jesus to live for him. Now we're going to play out what that looks like over the next couple of weeks in more detail, but I think that's how it all fits together. I do want to stop and reflect just for a moment though on then what's the significance of this particular chapter given some of the things I started with about those spiritual axioms. What you see here is this outrageous thing that Paul says that even the Jews who had God's law are labouring in what is a dead spirituality. It doesn't produce life. See, in the New Testament and the Christian Bible it is relentlessly exclusive. It says there is only one true God who is Father, Son and Spirit. There is only one true spirituality that will actually give you life and that's the spirituality that comes from the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the one true living God. Any other spirituality, no matter how peaceful, no matter how exuberant, no matter how cool, is actually only bearing fruit to death. The Bible is relentlessly exclusive and yet at the same time it is relentlessly inviting. And this spirituality is open to everyone from any background. If you would come to the Lord Jesus Christ and put your trust in him, then you will receive the promise of his Holy Spirit into your life and you can experience this, this Spirituality, that is the life that the one true living God intends for all of us. See, spirituality is not like ice cream. See, ice cream, who cares what you like? You know, chocolate, 
mint, marshmallow, I don't care, whatever it is, you can just pick whatever ice cream you fancy. Whatever is to your taste. If that picks no ice cream at all, that's cool too. In Australia, we treat spirituality like that. Just go whatever fits. Pick nothing at all. Pick whatever you like. But spirituality, according to Romans 7, is not like ice cream. Spirituality is like oxygen. If you're not drinking the oxygen, you die. So you decide, you know what? I decide I'm going to live off helium. Now that's going to be pretty funny for all of us for a little while, as you call funny. But it won't, it won't enable you to live, will it? You say, but I really like helium. It's really good. I've got to fit with my lifestyle. Well, somehow. <laughs> but it's not going to give you life. You decide, no, I'm going to suck down the CO2. That's the gas for me. Okay. We say, how about the noble gases? They sound good. I'll go for the noble gases. If it's not oxygen, you're not going to live. Spirituality is like oxygen. The only spirituality that really gives you life is that which comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit dwelling within you. But the good news is that oxygen is available for all. Jesus is available for all. So, let's, uh, that's sort of thing out verse 5. Uh, and in the last few minutes now, let's just think about, head back to our summary verses and see where Paul's going to go from here. To head back to the summary verses there on your feet, you can see that where Paul goes logically then is verse 4. The way that we move out of this old, dead spirituality, labouring under the old covenant, is through the transformation that comes through participation in the death of Jesus. You can see there verse 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. The key to spiritual transformation is through our participation in what Jesus achieved. I mean, it's a, a pretty straightforward point in one way. When you're dead, the law can't touch you anymore. Right? Your headset, whatever it is, when you're dead, they can't get it from you. Yes, they might get it from your estate. Yes, maybe they'll take your relatives. I don't know. But they won't get it from you. When you're dead, you're free from the law. The point that Paul says is when, when Jesus died, the old covenant law, it's got no more to say. It, it executed its just judgment on the world's sin there on his person. It's got nothing, no, it can't touch him anymore. But then the astounding thing he says is, and you, as a follower of Jesus, when you put your faith in him, he didn't just die for you, he took you with him. When he died, just as the Lord no longer has power over him, because by faith he is your representative and you are, you are in him, you die and the Lord no longer has touched over you. It is this astounding participation in Jesus, our representative, in his death to the power of the Lord, that means you don't have to follow the law anymore. You see that there's Paul's theological solution to what's going on at Rome, right? They're having this, this argy-bargy. Should we be following the law? Should we not? If we're followers of Jesus, here's his theological answer. 
As a follower of Jesus, when Jesus died, you died with him to the law, so you are no longer under the law. That's his conclusion. You can see it there in verse 6. He says, But now we've been released from the law, since we've died to what held us, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. So there's his theological solution. You don't have to follow the law. But he'll get to his pastoral solution in verse four, in chapter 14. So you have to wait for that. But his theological solution is you don't have to follow the law. Now, so you can see how that helps his situation there in Rome, but it helps you too, actually. So if you're a Christian, or maybe you're just checking out the Christian faith, you, you probably know that Christians care about this book, the Bible, right? We love this book because it's God's book. It tells us the things we need to know. But you actually read it because I tell you, it's fully weird. This is a fully weird book. There's all sorts of bizarre stuff in it. What do you do with it? Like there's all sorts of laws in those first five books. Let me read out some to you. Here's one. This law is from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 2 to 4. You might know it. Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cut. Okay? So, no more pig for you. Right? Why? Because pig has a divided hoof, but it doesn't chew the cud, therefore poor crackling out of the mouth of the Right? Now, if you call yourself a, you know, a follower of Jesus, you call yourself one of God's people, there is a serious law that God gave his people, and are you teaching it? No. Okay, here's another one. Numbers 15, 38. Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. Now, just to be honest, you didn't even know that was in there, did you? You had no idea that that was actually in the Bible. There's God's law. For generations to come, are you keeping that law? No. Do you have a good reason to not keep that law? It's in the Bible. You say you're a person of the Bible. Well, no, I don't have a good reason. I don't keep it because, well, no one else is. I guess if everyone else did keep it, I'd keep it too. That is like theological preschool. Like, seriously, you must have a better way of reading the Bible than that story. I just follow what everyone else does. Here in Romans 7 is the theological answer. Why you, as a follower of Jesus, don't follow those laws. And you don't need to follow those laws. Because when Jesus died to the law, you died with him. Because you participate in what he achieved. Because he's your representative and you are connected to him by faith and through his doing. There's a theological reason for it. Okay, well, we need to wrap up. We need to wrap up. And I haven't got time to sort of go through sort of the second half of the, of the outline. That's okay. What I want to point out to you is this. Let's come back to where we started. We started with some Aussie spirituality axioms, which was a bit of spiritual dabbling is cool, just don't overdo it. And all spiritualities are equally true or equally fictitious. What has Romans 7 helped us understand about these truths? Well, I think we can replace them with one Christian spirituality axiom. The Christian spirituality axiom, called counterpoint to those ones, is this. 
life as God intends is to be thoroughly spiritual, capital S, spirit. And those words are beginning because, see, the picture in Romans chapter 7 is that life at the very heart is a, defeat, or is a reality that are you in the flesh or are you in, a, in the spirit? That sort of fundamental division of all humanity then plays itself out in every aspect of your life. You can't have spirituality as an accessory to your life, on the periphery of your life. It goes to the very heart of what sort of human being are you? Are you in the flesh or are you in the spirit? It's thoroughgoing. Christian spirituality is thoroughgoing. It covers all of your life because it starts from the heart out. But secondly, it is capital S, spirit, you all. It's not, it's not true that all spiritualities are the same. It's not true that they're like ice cream. Spirituality is like oxygen. And unless you're drinking of that one true Holy Spirit, tragically, you are bearing fruit to death. Now, the good news of what the Holy Spirit does in our life in terms of how it then helps, it helps us give us the power to live God's way, in terms of what that means for the future, those are the two things that we're going to explore in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to do that over the next two weeks. So why not close in the prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, in fulfilment of all your promises, such that now your spirit is poured out into all of his people. We praise you for this amazing truth. We pray that more and more people will come to understand it, would give themselves to Jesus, your Son, our Lord, and so would experience the wonderful blessing of your spirit dwelling within us, that we might live for you. We pray for this, for more glory to your name, and with great thanks. Amen.